We had one of the best coaches in the nation on the show today. Welcome to the Coach's Edge podcast, dedicated to teaching, sharing, and learning the game. I'm your host, Steve Kramer. Thank you for joining us today. On the show, Brian Morehouse, head women's basketball coach at Hope College, national champion, multiple time WBCA coach of the year. This past season, they were 29 and 0 before the season was canceled due to COVID-19. We talk about how they handled that. We talk about his coaching philosophies and the million dollar question, program development, how you're successful year in and year out for decades. He's the person to ask, the fastest coach to 600 wins in division one, two, or three on the men's or women's side. Let's get to it. Excited to welcome WBCA Coach of the Year, Brian Morehouse of Hope College to the Coach's Edge podcast. Coach, thanks for taking the time. Happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity, Steve. Coach, you have so much experience coaching at the college level uh, for close to 30 years as a assistant coach and head coach. There's a ton of different ways and directions we can go with this podcast. But before we do that, could you give us a little bit of your backstory on how you got into college coaching? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I was really fortunate that uh, Dr. Glenn Van Weeren, a Hall of Fame coach actually at Hope College, uh, when I arrived here, um, saw some potential in me as a coach and offered me a position while I was in my undergraduate degree. Uh, my father uh, was a high school basketball coach, and um, I don't know that I uh, set goals to be a, a college basketball coach. Um, but uh, I went through my uh, undergraduate experience, got my teaching degree, a business major, and also a psych, social, and history uh, minor. So I saw a lot of different areas of the college. And um, as I graduated, um, really didn't have any limitations, could go anywhere in the United States. Uh, talked to Ben Braun at Eastern Michigan when he was there, possibly doing a, a graduate assistant job. And uh, so looking along those lines and also looking at high school teaching positions. So I had my resume out. Um, unbeknownst to me, Coach Van Weeren handed it off to our admissions office at Hope College. Um, and they called me in for an interview. Um, and it was really by the grace of God that I got the job. And, uh, you know, my brother went into a diabetic coma the day before. Um, so I didn't prep one iota for that interview. I drove down here. I remember sitting outside and uh, just saying, God, if I'm supposed to get this job and it, all signs are pointing to I'm not because I'm not prepared, I said, you better take the wheel from this point on. And I walked in and I don't know if I did well or not, uh, but they called me back the next day, offered me the job. And um, Coach Van Weeren offered me a position on his staff, uh, worked with him for a year, then took over the men's JV program for three years. Um, and then I started to look, you know, we were coming off a final four with our men um, thought maybe I'd stay one more year, but uh, had some opportunities to go into high school coaching uh, in Miami, had a couple different offers to move around from the college standpoint. And then the college approached me about the women's job and um, I turned them down. Um, and then they came back to me two days later and said, hey, we'd like for you to reconsider this. And I said, I've never coached women. I've been married for less than seven months. Um, I don't really have uh, uh, any background, um, you know, to coach the women's game. Um, 
but uh, you know, they came back to me actually uh, two days later, the two captains got wind that I was, um, that I had been offered the job. Um, Lisa Timmer, who is now Lisa Timmer Schoonbeld, um, and Danielle Hopp were the captains. They walked in and they said, hey, we've watched you work with the JV program. Um, we wanna be pushed. Uh, we think you're a great communicator and that's gonna play really well on the women's side. Um, and we think you're a, a really good teacher of the game. And um, so I went home, talked to my wife about it. She said, I don't know how many times you need to be, you know, nudged that maybe this is a good option. But um, I took that job and that was 25 years ago. Um, uh, I'm going to start my 25th year as the women's basketball coach at Hope College. Um, I've been really fortunate to have great teams, great players, great assistants, and uh, I've actually had some opportunities to leave and go to the division one or division two level. Um, they haven't been at the right time in my family's lives. And some of them just haven't been in the right position. You know, I think that you don't want to leave a great situation uh, for a position that's, that's, you know, maybe be a two or three year position where you make more money, but you don't really see the potential in that school to, to be a long-term solution. So here we are, we're 25 years later, uh, we're coming off in an amazing season. Um, it's been a great run. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And um, I'm pretty excited about retiring at this place eventually, uh, hopefully a long time down the road and, uh, you know, making this my one-stop career. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. The grass isn't always greener on the other side. And, you know, having the faith in that initial interview and, and talking to those that are important to you, always important when it comes to making a decision like you have and, and the success has followed. Um, so walk us through a little bit of this past season. You're 29-0. and 0, You're prepped up in the NCAA tournament. The season's canceled. How did you go about handling that unique, difficult situation with your team? Yeah. Um, I mean, toughest locker room I've ever had. I mean, w without a doubt. I've had really difficult losses. Uh, you know, we've lost on the doorstep of Final Fours. We've lost the national championship game. But that was the toughest locker room I've ever had. And it was because it, it didn't play its way out on the court. And, um, you know, I had to sort of push back on, on the anger and the frustration that I was experiencing and really find a way to help our players understand uh, that there were some big time life lessons that were gonna come out of this. And uh, so, just a lot of those conversations, a lot of uh, reflection on my, for myself on how to be a best, how to be the best leader in in those moments. Um, and it was uh, it was difficult, but um, you know you try to have grace. I I if you look back on it five months ago, I didn't have a real great understanding of what we were getting into at that time. I think a lot of people are like, oh yeah, and they they act like they knew where we were going. You know, this virus. I mean. You go from Rudy Gobert on ESPN to somebody walking into your locker room and saying, hey, you're not going to practice today. And the, I don't know that we completely understood the context of where it was, where it was going, and how long it was going to go and be at the forefront of, you know, the American uh, mindset. What was some of the reactions that your players had in trying to respond to something that truly is unprecedented? Yeah, yeah. Um, anger, um, frustration. Um, 
I mean, if you if you look at the uh, the the multiple levels of grieving um, a loss, um, and I think a lot of people apply that to um, uh, death. You know, when family members die, when people that are close to us die, and you talk about the grieving steps. Um, you know, we definitely went through those. Our, our players went through those. Our coaches went through those. And so it wasn't just so much of a one day and say, hey, guys, I'm really sorry. Um, it was, you know, checking in with our players on a, on a consistent basis um, after it happened and then all summer long. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now we're back on campus. And, you know, Sunday night, uh, four days ago, um, we were out at our football stadium and we'll put our highlight video up on the, on the big boards. First time they ever saw that. And, uh, you know, I think that was one last step in the grieving process to try to put last season to bed and respect it. And then try to turn that ship, you know, turn our team's focus forward and, you know, say, we're going to attack the unknown moving forward. You know, uh, there's a lot of talk about when our season will start, if it will start. Um, we are focused on our season starting in October, uh, like it always does. And until someone tells us that it's not, you know, we're going to attack each day. Uh, even though there's this unknown cloud hanging over us, we're going to attack it. We're going to be the best we can be on that day and in that moment. And each day, we're just going to try to get a little bit better, you know, a little bit better at conditioning, a little bit stronger. Uh, have our players go to outdoor courts um, and just work on their individual skill development on their own, you know, socially distanced um, and get better. Uh, yeah, we can't play intramural or we can't play three on three. We can't play open gyms, but you know, what can we do? And I think finding that yes for people right now, when there's so many no's out there, no, you can't go in a gym. No, you can't, um, you know, walk through a restaurant without a mask. No, 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 no. Well, let's find out. Let's, let's figure out the yeses. And instead of always giving our players these no's, say, hey, right now, I know this is frustrating and that's a no, but here's another way to do it. And finding that yes. Attacking the unknown, finding the yes, I think those are two great things to, for all of us to think about. So, Coach, your, your first head year was 96-97. I was looking at your coaching history, your record, first two years. You lost 12 games, 11 games. You're a little bit over 500. That third year, you went 20 games in a season for the first time. How did you go about creating – and this is the million-dollar question, really. How did you go about creating a a framework for a successful program year in and year out? Yeah. We focused on the the day-to-day process, first of all. I think that you've got to have an end – You've got to have a goal, but then you better be really, really structured in how you're going to commit to a process of daily improvement, right? And when I say daily improvement, I think one of the things that our players really started to buy into when I took over was the off season, right? I mean, it wasn't, ah, we got to March 1st, you know, 15 and 12. Um, Well, that was a nice season. Uh, You know, next October, let's, let's hope that we get better. Uh, they really committed to um, conditioning and strength and skill development back before skill development was popular. Okay, now let's, <laughs> we didn't always have skill trainers. All right, we didn't always have off-season 
lifting and running programs. I mean, I, 25 years ago, I know a lot of people watching this, like that might be before they were born, but we didn't have all that stuff. And so we tried to develop, um, you know, we print off a booklet for them, take it home with different drills that they could do, you know, in their driveway. Not everybody had access to gyms. You know, we talk about running. We talk about just personal fitness and, and nutrition for our kids in the off season. So I think it was the process leading to goals. I also think that we, uh, we were able to attract, even that first year, we had a great group of people in our program that I inherited. Um, you know, Lisa, uh, Lisa Timmer Schoonveld um, is the mother of Kennedy Schoonveld, who was a first team All-American at Hope this year. Um, so it's not really that I'm that good a coach. I've inherited good players <laughs> right. and, and we've attracted good players. But we had a group of kids, you know, Tara Porter, Darcy Zay, I, I won't be able to name them all. Um, but, you know, we, we, we had a group that really wanted to get better and they were tough kids. They were tough athletes and they dove on the floor and they did tough things and they got better. So I think the process is super important. Um, and I just think that you can't change your philosophy every single day and you can't execute somebody else's philosophy. Like you can't look at um, how Pat Summit did things and say, oh, well, I'm just going to copy everything that Pat Summit did. Now, should we all aspire to be more like Pat Summit in our leadership and our organization and things like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what she ran on offense, I didn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't do that. That wasn't my background. So I could try to run Pat's offense, but running coach summits offense would have been a mistake because that's really not what I understood. And that's really not what I believed in to a certain extent. Like I, I think that we all have to go off of our experiences and teach what we're comfortable with. I get the question all the time by my new coaches, right? Um, Hey, show me your offense, you know, show me your defense. And I said, well, before I do that, tell me what your background is. Tell me what you believe the right way to play the game is. Because, you know, you hear this all the time, you know, um, guys say, you know, that person plays the right way. Well, I mean, a lot of that has to do with um, the optics of the person that's doing that evaluation. You know, if you, if you watch, um, if you watch uh, basketball at pretty high levels, the NBA, <clears throat> there's a lot of coaches that are, um, have an older school philosophy that would say, well, that's just bad basketball. They leave their feet to make that pass all the time, and you should never be off balance, and you should never leave your feet to make a pass. Okay, well, there's people that would say they're not playing the right way because they have an occasional turnover because they left their feet. Well, they've got a lot more opportunities to make assists because people are in the right spots. And it's not an unfundamental play anymore because they've learned how to play. You know, young people have learned how to play doing that. And they understand when somebody penetrates and they've watched the NBA, they've watched the WNBA, that if I move to open spots, if they collapse, I'm going to get a wide open three off this. And that's a super high efficiency shot coming off a, a penetration and a kick. So, you know, I just, I just think that those are a lot of the things that really drive coaching philosophies. And you've got to teach within your comfort zone because you can't be 
somebody else. You got to do what you're comfortable with. I think that's great advice. And, you know, being able to do what works for yourself and works for your players and, yes. and does it help? Are they getting yes. better? Yep. If the answer is yes, then you know you're on the right track. Sure, we're going to learn from, as you mentioned, Pat Summit, great players who are, you know, you say, okay, if we're passing, are we, we jumping to find a pass? We jumping to make a pass. Right. And, you know, you look at Chris Paul, a lot of times he's jumping to make a pass. He's not just jumping, oh, now where am I at? And now I need to find somebody open. Um, being able to learn from people while not necessarily copy everything that they're doing, that's going to give us an opportunity to, to be yeah. successful. Um, coaches, anytime that we've been in anything, whether it's coaching as a player, the winning is fantastic. The success, the recognition is, is great, but it's a lot of the learning that takes place during the struggles, during the challenges, during losses, during failure. What were some times in your career where you were really taught some great lessons through those challenges? Yeah, my first five years, um, you know, we didn't win at a super high level in year one and two, you know, 12 and 13 losses. But I probably learned more about coaching and about myself and about relationships with players, um, you know, during those f first five years. Um, you know, the learning curve was very steep at that point for me. And um, I mean, I, I often, you know, when I, when I see former players for, you know, those first few years, you know, they'll come in and they'll say hi and, you know, we'll reconnect. And, and it, every one of them, I'm like, you know, I just want to go back and apologize for, you know, that I wasn't a better coach. Thank you for the patience that you showed in me when you were probably just shaking your head at this guy, you know, running up and down the court, yelling for people to run faster and do these different things and not being a great communicator, you know, and, oh, I think I'll tweak our offense like this today. And, uh, you know, just, I really appreciate uh, being able to be in the lab with those people. And, um, you know, we blew up some experiments. I'll be honest with you. Like, <laughs> I, I, I apologize, you know, Lisa, Lisa Timmer, she should have been like an All-American playing for me. And I didn't always use her right. Um, and, you know, she only played for me for one year before she graduated. But, um, you know, hopefully some of the lessons that I learned during that period, I've been able to now use with her daughter um, and, and be a better coach for, for her daughter now. So, um, yeah, losing teaches you a lot of life lessons. Um, but I also think just day-to-day -day struggles when your practices don't go as planned and then having to really reevaluate. And it's not always the player's fault. In fact, I would say that it, the players aren't at fault for like 90% of bad practices, right? I think that as coaches, we have to accept that responsibility and we've got to be better communicators on um, what are we trying to get out of this drill? You know, what are our goals for that day in practice? having a set of standards that we set up before the season that we aspire to achieve every day in practice instead of like just making it up on the fly, you know, like, Oh, yesterday we didn't do this very well at practice today. I'm going to come in and say, this is what I'm going to hold people accountable for. And this is what I'm going to make them run for do pushups for I mean, If I don't have that stuff figured out before we start practicing in a season, shame on me. And, and, and being able to work with my captains and my assistant coaches to develop those set of standards that now we're not making it up on the fly. 
I mean, we, we didn't even meet with our team before practice last year as coaches. You know who met with our team? Our captains. You know, we, we hit December, and our captains go, hey, you care if we talk to the team before practice today? I'm like, absolutely, got to go for it. Best practice of the year. You know why? Because they laid out the groundwork for that day's practice. Here's what we as a program want to aspire to today based on our standards in our pyramid that we set up last October. And all of a sudden, our practices, which were already pretty good, went to next level because our players owned it. Right? We were, we were very much a player-led program last year, and we as coaches could sit back and coach and they would take care of the effort. They would take care of the concentration, the communication piece. And then we just had to be really good communicators on our own. Like, here's the plan for the day. Here's what we want to execute. Because our players were such good listeners. They were, such, they were so good at holding each other accountable. But then it took, you know, the bad cop piece off of us as, as coaches, where we would step in once in a while, and our players were policing each other as we went through the season. That's awesome. I, I think that, you know, as a, as a coach, you're setting, you know, the successful coaches that I talk to, one thing is, is always very similar. They're, they're providing a, a framework, a consistency that their players know what to expect, what the expectations are. And then the coaches also have the lack of some ego so that they can give that back to the players and so now that it can become a, a player-led team. And, you know, as Tom Mizzo always says, a player-led team is going to be a coaching-led team sure. any day. Um, and I think that's, that's fantastic, understanding your process. And you mentioned not necessarily big struggles sometimes, but maybe a practice doesn't go well. It's those small things that we can continue to reevaluate on sometimes a daily basis that can really set us up for success in the long run. Uh, Coach, you're really known for having a high level of offensive efficiency within your team. So I like to think, like, as a head coach, you're the, you're the chef. You own the – you got the restaurant, and the players are the ingredients, and, and yet everything has to work together to make this, this winning dish, right? So if you're looking to, to build a great offense, what are some of the things that you really want to incorporate? Um. Communication to your players on um, what efficient offense looks like. Um, so I think that players in this day and age, um, they want to know the why. And, and that's where I think I've evolved as a head coach. I used to say run through the wall because I told you to, right? Uh, and, and now we really try to spend a lot of time in uh, whether it be uh, with data on a piece of paper, uh, showing video, uh, breaking things down statistically, uh, just so that they can understand why certain shots are good and why certain shots are bad. And um, I, I think that the NBA and the WNBA are so helpful because like, they just have data and breakdowns that we don't have at any other level. Even, even Power Five conferences, they have data on, I mean, shoot, they track how many times LeBron James touches his teammates, you know, with high fives and pats on the back. I mean, if they're tracking that, they're tracking everything. So we really talk to them about, like, how to create a more efficient offense um, with taking certain shots, 
getting the ball from sideline to sideline, attacking, getting paint touches. And once they start to understand that, now they can understand the why behind why we're trying to do certain things on our offense. Like here's an opportunity to get the ball to this spot, which will be the most efficient way for you to either get fouled, get a layup, or create a kickout. Uh, this is how we want to attack closeouts. This is why. And when you attack them, this is where you want to go. So we do a lot with video. Um, you know, we're fortunate to have some great technology. Um, you know, one of the things that I invested in was a 70-inch TV that I put on um, rollers and I could have right next door to our, right on our, um, right on our court so that we could actually watch ourselves. And it's an incredibly powerful tool. Players don't want to go in a classroom and watch 20 to 30 minutes of video. They live in an era of Instagram and TikTok, and they want to be able to watch things in small snippets. I, as a coach, have to be able to deliver those in small snippets, right, as a teacher, because their brains are, it's like asking someone to go out and run five miles who doesn't typically run five miles. We can't ask our kids to watch 30 minutes of video and stay locked in and concentrating because they're not doing that in their lives. Okay, they don't sit down and watch a show. They don't watch Cheers or Friends for 30 straight minutes and suffer through, um, you know, the commercials because they want to get to the other side of the commercial and keep watching. Now they watch everything stream. They watch a TikTok. You know, we're talking about minute, minute and a half. So that's been an important teaching technique for us to get your efficiency idea across to our players. So you mentioned a couple things I really like. What I think, I think the video aspect and the small chunks can't be understated, especially for players today. It cannot be understated as a coach listening and you're trying to get through to your team. They're just going to fall asleep. You put them in a classroom, you turn the lights down, you set that video up and you go through an hour long game film. It's not going to work, right? You have to be able to, to break things down into chunks, into pieces, because that's how they're digesting content on a daily basis, even subconsciously as you mentioned, through Instagram, through TikTok, through a short Twitter video, they're seeing these short, short chunks. Yeah. And then when they do watch long form video, as you mentioned, which is on Netflix or whatever, there's not even any commercials, right? So, so they're able to, to process information much faster, really, than we've been used to in the past. And in many ways, if we do that correctly, I think it can, it can make it even easier uh, as, as coaches, if we're efficient with being able to, to do that. Now, Offensively, you mentioned a couple of things. You said getting the basketball going from sideline to sideline. You, you talked about attacking paint touches. I love the sideline to sideline because, I mean, you got on-ball defense, gap defense, okay, transitioning to help side defense, and then back again with, with, with player and, and ball movement. And then you talked about the paint touches. Is there anything that you found with paint touches that seem to be more effective? So what I mean by that is, is whether it's a, a post-touch paint touch um, whether it's a dribble drive paint touch, whether it's a early offense transition paint touch, what have you found to be really successful for you guys with attacking the paint? Yeah, well, early offense is probably the most highly, highly efficient way just because the defense is already kind of in a backpedal and a scramble. So I think that's the, that's the most efficient way. Um, you know, I think anytime you empty out the post, um, it just makes – recovery and um and and help areas more difficult but we've been blessed with post players so you know we throw the ball in there 
um, you know, we have, uh, we have big guards, so we'll post up our guards and we actually, you know, Olivia Bosco, six foot four, uh, you know, she can shoot the three for us. So like, I mean, some of the efficiency stuff that we're able to do is because we have really good players. Right. But, um, I, I don't think we always want to attack and be efficient in transition. That's number one. Um, number two, we want to get the ball side to side. Number three, whether it's off a dribble drive or whether it's off an actual post touch, um, you know, that's sort of the third piece that we want to make sure that we get done according to efficient offense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, defenses are so much better now. Gap defenses make life, you know, a lot more difficult. People aren't out of position nearly as often. Um, but I do think that if you can move them, if you can attack them, um, and then it's sort of the attack and then the reattack, right? So I think you got to move them side to side. I think you got to attack a closeout. You got to kick for a shot. And then typically they're good enough to cover that. And then I think that you need to reattack. And it's really difficult to guard, you know, two attacks. Um, no attacks, really easy to guard. One attack, defenses have, uh, you know, evolved to the point where they're able to handle that unless they're not a very good team. Two attacks, really difficult, right? And if you get to three attacks, I think that your, your efficiency rating is incredibly high. You know, you're going to get fouled. You're going to get a layup or you're going to get a wide open three. The consecutive actions are what are, what's going to beat a good defensive team. You know, one action, okay, bad team, whatever, you're going to get it done. But against a good team, it's those two and three consecutive actions of ball and player movement, attacking inside, outside, getting into closeouts that are going to be able to get it done. I love that. And I love the three pieces of transition, side to side, paint touch and, that's what the analytics show is, is early offense is high percentage shooting. And I think that that's where as coaches, sometimes we get confused. Oh, there was only one pass on that possession. There was only two passes in that possession. Well, if that was early offense, one or two pass, and maybe it was a, it was a strong point guard push that had that brought up uh, somebody else was running the other um, slot. And so somebody had to slide over and it was one pass for uh, a layup or a kick out three. So what if it was one pass? That's the best shot that we could have come up with 30 seconds into, into the clock. That's great. That's great stuff. You're, there, there's so much that goes into offensive efficiency, looking at the, the data. But as I always say, you, you can have the best strategy in the world. But if your O's can't dribble, pass, and shoot, and your X's can't defend and rebound, it doesn't matter how good your, your strategy is. So – what are some things that you've emphasized with developing highly skilled players over the years at Hope? Yeah. Um, first of all, I should probably bring my assistant coaches in on this because I've got a lot of opinions and I'm a pretty good teacher of fundamentals, but the magic sauce in our program, honestly, is our assistant coaches. Um, you know, Cully Carlson, one of the best post coaches, you know, I, I've ever watched teaching the game. Um, Kyle Lurvey, worked with Nate Oates uh, when he was at Southfield Christian. And then now Nate is at Alabama, Courtney Cust, you know, WBCA, you know, top 30 under 30 coaches in the United States. And um, Kyle and Courtney uh, both do a lot of, uh, a lot of our guard wing actions, point guard actions. And then Cully works a little bit more with our post, but then we've started to also mix and match those people. Right. Uh, So, um, you know, I think we've gotten to the point where, uh, there's certain things that we're going to teach everybody, 
you know, whether you're our center and you're driving from the top of the key or whether you're our point guard driving from the top of the key, the looks and the reads are still the same. And we're just spending a lot of money on um, money and time on um, attacking angles. Right. So I think if you watch the NBA, what are they good at? You know, it is, this bubble stuff is amazing because you watch games all day long. Right. Mm-hmm. And you watch, oh, well, that's how an elite offensive player got by an elite defensive player. And it was based on understanding attack angles, not taking two inches further wide, but you're attacking a hip, you're getting into body, you're creating space through contact. It's just amazing. And then being able to use that as a teaching tool, um, you know, when we sit down with our players in the season and say, you know, okay, I'll show you some WNBA stuff right now. I'll show you some NBA stuff. This is all, this all is what you can do, right? This is all what a player can do. So that's been a really good teaching technique. Um, we, we've got a, um, we've got a couple of different shooting systems. We've got four shooting guns and we've got this NOAA shooting system. That's amazing to help our kids. And that's been a great tool for them to gain consistency on shot release um, right, left. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's been amazing to help our kids get better. Um, I think the guns are incredibly helpful to a certain point, but I also think that some people become too gun heavy. And then all of a sudden you think every pass is coming out from underneath the basket. And all of a sudden your footwork and how you catch the ball, you know, sliding into a cut. Um, you know, I, I just think you've got to balance out your gun experience, either partner it up where they're making a pass from the top of the key or the wing and, or, you know, a kick out from inside right from the hoop on the gun. I think that's a great point. It's obviously inside outside passes lead to a higher percentage of perimeter shots being made, but it's not realistic that every shot is led from, you know, an inside outside pass. So being able to, to work that with perimeter passes coming in. And then, you know, as you talked about attacking closeouts, you know, all closeouts aren't coming from the rim either. You know, there, a lot of them are coming at a, at an angle um, where we have to learn how to attack. You know, if I'm on the right wing and I'm getting a pass from the top of the key, okay, that defender's in the gap and they're, they're closing out on my left left side, well, I have to practice how to, how to read and attack that close now based on where, where I need to go. And I, I love the, again, you're bringing back the, the video, watching examples of other high-level players doing things. And, you know, I try to break it re- down real simply with a lot of our perimeter players if they're trying to break down a defender, you can either freeze that defender or you can shift the defender. Mm-hmm. That's simple. So let's forget about between the legs, cross, all right. great moves, okay? Yeah. But let's simplify it even more. Right. If I can freeze my defender and then go by him, or if I can shift that defender, get them leaning or stepping one way or the other to create a straight line drive for myself, Correct. that's what I need to do. And, and then being able to, like you mentioned, attack tight. You know, I clip the hip. Clip yep. the hip when you go by the defender, try to get him to open up. And then what I've loved seeing in the, the bubble, and this is in the women's game and the men's game, is that when you get into that second line of defense, players are getting so good at using that body dribble where they, they're really – that defender, whether it's coming off of a ball screen, and they really get into the body of the defender, bump them off to create more space. Chris Paul's a great, great example of that. And there's so many things that, you know, it doesn't – take an elite athlete to pull that off. You just have to understand the spacing and the concepts, which is things that, that you're breaking down. You've mentioned the, the game ch- changing, 
right? The game is, is moving faster. Teams defensively are starting to, to get better. What are some things that you've had to emphasize more in recent years? And I'm thinking, you know, ball screens are a big part of the game. I'm thinking the, the mid-range emphasis has changed for, for many teams. What are some of your feelings on those aspects of the game? There's a lot of players that understand ball screens um, at, a, at a middle school level, right? Because they were taught, um, come off a ball screen and you either go to the rim or you throw it to the roller. And um, the evolution is really right now um, to understand the, the third look, you know, the look for yourself, the look for your, um, the look for your um, roller, but then the look for the people uh, that are lifting behind the screener, the look for the strong side kick out and where's the help coming from. And, and again, we go right back to, you can't be a good player if you can't handle the ball with your eyes on the rim all the time. You know, it goes back to that. And yeah, there's probably a place there out there for, you know, two ball drills and, and ball handling. I'm not a huge fan um, of the two ball drills uh, once you get past being able to dribble with your eyes up. You know, uh, so, you know, then it becomes how can I use it in a game situation and never take my eyes off the rim and under in teaching reads and to your point, you know, getting into bodies and putting people in jail, uh, you know, as you clip the hip and you come off screens. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of teaching that way. We're really fortunate with our video system. Like we can show our kids, hey, here's your last 15 turnovers. Now that, that is an incredible teaching tool in, in, in like literally seven second clips. Right. And then we ask them, instead of telling them, we ask them, you know, here's you off your last 25 ball screens. Where did you think you took advantage of opportunities? Where do you think you missed opportunities? All of a sudden now the game is slowing down for them because they're able to rewind it and see, Oh, wow. I missed that person because I had my eyes on my defender's chest. And I was looking at my defender instead of having my eyes on the rim and seeing, you know, the other people that were available on the court because kids come off ball screens, they bury their chin in their uh, chest, they bury their eyes in their defender's chest, and, you know, they just can't see everything. Well, that's where I go say we got to take this from a middle school understanding to a high school slash college understanding and a pro you know, when you get to be a pro understanding, you know, if you can get a kid by the time they're a junior to have a pro understanding of ball screen reads, now, now everybody else on the team is better. Man, I love the fact that you mentioned you're showing the clip, but you're not telling them right away what that answer should have been. You're asking them. And yeah. I think that does a couple things. One, it gives them some ownership, yeah. right, of, of the situation. And then two, from a learning, from a, a, a mental processing standpoint, you're giving them the chance to, to see, to read, to evaluate, and find a solution on their own. And then you can, you can be there in the background trying to answer or, or help guide them if they need it. But I think there's so much power in being able to give that over to the player and just ask them, here's a situation. It didn't go well. Let's look at it what would you have done differently? Sure. And man, we're going to be able to speed up the learning process so much faster. And you're going to be able to develop a better relationship with your player than just saying, you shouldn't have done that. 
you should have done this instead, passed over here. And then they're just saying, oh, well, coach told me, you know, off, the, off that roll, I need to pass it to the top of the key for my teammate that's lifting up. But they haven't understood the situation as much. And so they're at, you're actually hurting them for the next game because of that. I think that's fantastic stuff. You're obviously really passionate about the, the player development role and the role that effort plays in being a successful player and being a successful team. How do you measure that? You know, I've had coaches ask, like, hey, play hard, go, go hard. And then they've asked, well, well, how do you know? Like, how do you really know if somebody's really getting after it? Are there any tools that, that you've used? Yeah. Um, so I think the biggest mistake we as coaches make are telling kids that they need to play harder. Right. Um, I, I think that that it's, it's just such a general term um, because every player has a different viewpoint based on how they were coached in middle school and high school and an AAU, like what playing harder was from that scope that they've experienced in life. We don't allow we don't allow that to be a, a topic for us. If we can't break it down more specifically than that, then it's not worth talking about. So for us, it's about we need you to run harder. No, no, no. We need you to win the first two steps on offense as we transition from a rebound to going into our early offense. First two steps. Right? Don't tell them to run harder all the way down there. Just get them up to speed quicker. Right? You can use that in your conditioning. You can use that in your drills. You can use that as an expectation as you watch film. Like, hey, it looks to me like you didn't, you didn't go. Like we got, like Voss got the rebound. You stood and wanted to make sure that she got the rebound. Well, you could see that she had that thing. You're starting even with your defender. You got to beat her on the first two steps. Uh, other things that we talk about playing hard. Um, communicating, like communicating is hard. That's a part of playing hard, right? It, it, communicating loudly and communicating constantly. That's a difficult thing. People say, yeah, you got to do that on defense. No, you got to do that on offense. You got, I mean, you, it's got to be a constant communication while you're on the basketball court. And the first thing that goes when you start to get tired is your voice. First thing that goes. So when we're doing our conditioning, we don't allow them to not be talking during conditioning. Why? Because we're trying to condition their voices and condition their lungs and their legs, right? So we're trying to condition all of those pieces. Um, offensively rebounding, right? That's part of playing hard in my opinion, because it's hard to go from the three-point line knowing that you're gonna get probably less than 10% of offensive rebound. 10% of the time that you go, you're not gonna get it. Our brain tells us that that isn't a payoff. That's not a good use of energy, okay? But part of playing hard and part of being an efficient offense is going every single time because if you can get four more possessions, that wins games, right? That wins games. So I think when we can take the philosophy of playing hard as we as coaches, we have this ideal of what playing hard looks like, and we can break it down into specific things that we can track. Now, all of a sudden, we can not only demand it, we can hold players accountable, but we can also celebrate it. And I think that's the other thing as coaches we need to do a better job of. When we get it, when we get it, like 
you better not just go, yep, that's what I told you to do. You better celebrate it because now all of a sudden we're humans. We want positives. We want to be lifted up, right? We don't want to be the person that gets yelled at. So now all of a sudden I'm lifting up Newman because she's in the right spot. She doesn't stop talking. She just played for four minutes. She didn't shut up on offense and defense and, and she played at a super high level. You know, she was in her spot. She didn't cut corners on being the helpline or going offensive rebound. And now I'm building her. I'm saying Newman, that's what we aspire to be right there. Way to go. Now everybody is like, Oh, you know, I want a little of that too. You know, I, I, I want that feeling of coach loving me up. And, uh, you know, that's really what we've got our program to is instead of always correcting what they're not doing, try to lift them up on what they are doing and let the other people try to lift their play to where the kids that are doing it, instead of picking on the three kids that aren't doing it and saying you're letting the whole program go. I think those are great nuggets that you just gave as far as being specific with what playing hard actually looks like because you're you're absolutely right it's such a general generic statement uh we we got to play hard i think game speed's another one go game speed go game speed what do most coaches mean go faster well the game isn't always fast the game is slow it's it's medium it's fast it's change of pace it's change of rhythm um, and, and so I think when we can get rid of some of those generalities and get specific like hey we want you to beat win the race from free throw line to free throw line or from arc to arc and the measuring tool of effort combined with the communication I think that's a great piece and I've heard communication being mentioned by many coaches but I haven't heard it broken down like that and how it combines with the the energy and the effort and the playing hard I think that's that's fantastic from a, a scouting standpoint I really want to ask you this question do you prefer when you're playing a team and let's say they have a really dominant post player or they're really effective using the ball screen do you say there's specific adjustments that we're going to make based on their personnel and what their strengths are? Or are you more along the, the lines of this is how we play ball screens? This is how we play post defense. They have to adjust to us. What are your thoughts on those different philosophies? Uh, great question. Uh, first of all, we were the number one team in the nation last year defensively. Okay. Um, and so we've got some pretty strong opinions on defense in our basketball program. Uh, I, I think that for us, there are certain things that are non-negotiables, just the way that we play defense, right? Like we, I mean, we do things probably differently than a lot of other schools. Um, and we spend a lot of time on getting good at those, you know, like we full front the post. I mean, no, not many teams do that anymore, right? Like people don't do that. Uh, we full front the post with a six, four girl that can dunk a tennis ball. Like people are like, why would you do that? Let her play behind. We had one of the most dominant players in the history of division three, Carrie Snickers, right? Um, six foot three, uh, second in Miss basketball in the state of Michigan. Uh, she hated it when she came here. We told her she had to front the post, but after the first, you know, three months, she got it and our defense was better. Then she went and played in Spain professionally. And she goes, coach, this is the dumbest thing ever. I'm in foul trouble every game. I'm playing behind the post over here in Spain, man. They, they, everything's a foul. 
And I'm like, yeah, that's why we do it. So um, what do we believe in as far as adjustments? That's where I think we've become better as coaches in the last four or five years is it used to be we do this, we do it one way, we don't ever make adjustments. Now we have four different ball screen coverages. We used to have one. Now our hammer with only one ball screen coverage was pretty dang good, which is why we didn't add different ones. One of the biggest reasons that we added different ball screen coverages was so that we would be better offensively every day in practice. So we could change up our defensive coverages. And then we said, hey, you know, we can do this in games. And so we started changing our ball screen coverages on the fly. You know, we're, we're coming back to defense. And my defensive coordinator and I, I do a lot of stuff like football, right? I have a defensive coordinator. I'm the offensive coordinator. But one of my assistants is kind of like my, my number one uh, in offensive coordinating. So, like, our, our defensive coordinator is calling out our ball screen coverage as we're running back to defense. And, you know, that's tough to guard. Uh, that's tough to go against. Um, you know, we believe in cutting the court in half. You know, we're going to be a little bit for, for the guys that are watching this game that might watch more men's basketball. We're going to be more Texas Tech, like, defensively and Chris Beard than we are um, going to be, like, a, a gap, like uh, Virginia. Right. right? So, um, you know, just it all depends on what you want. But for me, we do some adjustments. But, like, we're still going to be in help side. No matter how good the shooter is on the weak side, we're going to be in help side. Now, we might take a cheat step because we know that kid, you know, they're isolating her on the weak side trying to suck us in and throwing a skip pass. You know, we might have to teach our kids how to read eyes, read shoulders on passing. You know, is that really kid really driving to shoot? Or is she really driving to set up their best shooter on the weak side? So there's been a lot of teaching that's gone into that. But – um, we will make adjustments, but you won't see us very often like, hey, we're going to face guard this kid when she comes across half court because we don't want her to touch the ball. We have enough confidence in our team defense that we don't have to do that from an individual standpoint. So you're making adjustments, but you're not changing philosophy. You're not changing standards throughout the Great course of the game. It. Yeah. I mean, okay. we, we want to we attempt to take five charges a game. When we don't, you know, we talk about it because we think within our defense, there should be at least five opportunities in a game. And so, you know, that's a standard to your point. And that's also about playing hard, going back to a previous part of our conversation. Like you've got to make sure that you can break down in your standards what you want out of your defense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on thoughts on the mid-range game. I mean, there, there's there's so much data that says, hey, you shoot threes, free throws, mm -hmm. and layups. You know, where, where does hope fall in line there? I would say that we fall into that area, but I also think that we've got three or four kids on our team that have really good mid-range game, right? So I think as a generality, you want to you wanna try to fit your efficiency within the numbers. But I can't take, you know – shots away from Kennedy and Newman and Meg who are all really good mid-range kids because they might not get a better shot and they're some of our best offensive players. So that's a hard conversation because you're talking to your team as a whole, right? And, you know, and I've never been the red light, green light, yellow light guy. Uh, I, I, it blows my mind when people do that. Um, 
but on the other hand, I think it's good to pull kids aside and say, listen, if you can come off the ball screen, you get a 15 footer, look at your, look at your shot chart, look at your heat map for you. That's a good shot, right? For, you know, these other eight players, that's not. And so instead of me calling out our whole team and saying, you're not good, you're not good, you're not good at this. I pull aside our good, you know, our kids that can do that and say, Hey, you have the green light anytime you can get a shot in this area. I think that's, that's really important because players aren't robots. They're all not the same. And, and when we look at them from uh, an overall arching generality perspective of this is a bad shot, this is a good shot, you're handcuffing certain players. Right. I know, I know, you know, if coach Van Weir, when I was playing, would have said, Steve, no mid range jumpers. He'd have put some big time handcuffs yeah. on my game because I shot over 50% for my career. And a, a large percent of those shots were mid range jump shots. But when you have certain players, I think it opens up other aspects of the court yeah. because they're actually a threat. You want all your players shooting 15 footers. Yeah. Of course not. Right. But it, there are certain players, as you mentioned on your team, that if they can hit that shot, like all mid range jumpers, what I say aren't created equal. And if you have a couple players that can hit them, that's going to open up more driving angles. It's going to increase that, that gap help, which is mm -hmm. going to allow, you know, kickouts, open threes for other players much easier. So and, I, and I like that great, answer. Go ahead. And some great offensive rebounding opportunities off mid-range game for people crashing. You know, here's, here's one of my pet peeves lately with coaches clinics and, and things like that. Um, Everybody wants to run the warrior stuff. Everybody wants to run the rocket stuff uh, because they're, you know, they're killing it offensively. They're putting up these huge moments, but like, come on people. I mean, like we don't have stuff coming off a pin down. I mean, I mean, let's be real. Like you're running warriors action at the high school level. I, come on. Like, again, no, know your clientele, right? And, and great, if you start shooting it on a super high level, maybe that becomes some different actions that you want to run. But I've watched a lot of high school basketball in my life. And there are not people that ought to be running multiple pin downs for their kids on their team, because they usually have one good shooter on their team, or maybe two. So to run Warriors action, you know, to run Rockets action, uh, not a great idea. And I think that, again, know yourself and know what will work. I mean, don't be mad at your team when they only score. You know, I'm watching high school basketball games. They're scoring 14 points and a half. It's because you need more layups. Your team can't shoot the three. You got to go get layups and get fouled. And understanding the level that you coach at and quit trying to run NBA stuff and 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 UConn stuff and, and, and uh, South Carolina stuff with Staley, like understand your level and put it into a manageable uh, mindset for your kids. I'll give you a story that goes along with that. I was working with a high school program this past year. They won their first league title in over 30 years this past season. And the coaches had said, we're not shooting in a small, small rural school. And the coaches said, we're not shooting threes this year. 
we got maybe one player we're going to have shooting threes. We're shooting all mid-range, post, driving the paint, layups, and free throws. And, I mean, if you said that to, you know, probably the coaches listening to this podcast, like, this is is nuts. I'm telling you, they won their first league title in 30-plus years because they knew that at the, the level that their program was at, they couldn't embody the generalities of what said this is going to make you successful because they couldn't do it. And if they shot a bunch of threes, they would have probably shot like 10%, I don't know, for, for the season. And they would have won less than 50% of their games instead of winning the league. So, again, it, another example is when I, I talk to a coach after they go to a coach's clinic and they're like, oh, Beeline was running, you know, this offense. And I was like, well, yeah, you had Trey Burke and Tim Hardaway. Right. Of course, it, of course it worked really well. And now and he's, and he's recruiting to implement it over the course of years and years of being a college coach, whereas you have high school players and you're trying to do it in a couple months <laughs> without the personnel. That's a recipe for, for disaster. And it usually is. And it usually is. <laughs> well, I know the high school coach and the high school team that you're talking about. And um, he's actually a good friend of mine. And uh he said, you know, I, I get a little blowback because people are, you know, they want exposure and, you know, they, they think maybe their kid can go to the college level and everything. And I just said to him, I said, the only exposure they're going to get is being exposed that they can't shoot. And I said, that's not a great exposure when a college coach is flipping on game tape to, to recruit a kid. So I, I really encouraged him that he was on the right path. And then that doesn't mean that you can't keep working on expanding three-point shots and improving shooting form. And I said, you know, there's going to come a point where you're going to have to let, you know, player A loose a little bit because she's not going to be able to get certain shots. And um, I just think that he is a great example of understanding his clientele, his personnel, and being able to, you know, explain to his team why – this other way is a winning formula. And as we keep getting better in practice and we keep working on shooting these shots, maybe we expand that into our, into our program. But right now, this isn't about player exposure to get them to the next level. This is about winning league championships. And oh, by the way, we haven't done that in 30 years and we're going to celebrate the heck out of winning that because we played the game the way that is right for our program at this stage. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Coach, is, you know, obviously as a college coach, you're, you're recruiting players. What are some of the, the intangibles that you look for in a player? I think body language is a big thing. Um, I think being a, a self-reliant player where they're not always looking at the coach or they're, please don't ever look at your parents for um, input during a game. Um, you know, people have lost, often asked me, and I, I see this on, on Twitter all the time, you know, what are the top three things that you're looking for as you recruit a player, right? Uh, number one for me is the ability to handle the ball with your right and left hand with your eyes on the rim all the time. Um, I know that when they come in, if they can't do those things, I'm going to have to spend an inordinate amount of time teaching them because those are turnovers waiting to happen. And if you turn over the ball at our level, it's a layup going the other way, and I can't guard layups, breakaway layups, right? So that's number one. Um, Number two um, for me is an ability to um, not shoot in volume, but to be a, an efficient shooter maker, right? Um, it, I mean, I, 
we were recruiting a young lady last year and you know i always ask high school coaches for these stats i said can you give me her three point percentage her field goal percentage free throw percentage and um and her assist to turnovers because i want to see did that kid average 17 shooting 30 percent or did they average 17 shooting 41 percent that's a big difference and and i understand that not all basketball programs are created equal some kids are playing with a lot of good players on a team other times you're a one person team and you know you don't have a lot of kids that can make shots around you so you have to take some bad ones like but i can watch the video or a highlight and understand that if i have those numbers behind it so i think you've got to have kids that can make shots i, I think the other thing is from a shooting form perspective if you don't have good shooting form, um, our three-point line over the last nine years has gone from the high school line, 19 feet, nine inches, to 20 feet, nine inches, you know, a foot further back. I, I really believe in the next two years, it's going to go to the international line. If you don't have good form, you can squeeze them in from, as a free throw shooter with bad form, you can make free throws. You can even squeeze shots in from 19 feet, nine inches with average form, right? But you start moving it out further and further and further. Think of it like this on, on a billiards table, on a pool table, right? A longer shot, if you're just a little bit off on a, on a pool table on a shot, you're going to miss that ball, right? It's the same thing in basketball. The further you go out, the more imperfections that you have the higher degree of missing that shot is. So we try to have kids that have good form or form that we feel that we can tweak a little bit and that we can develop them into a consistent three-point shooter. So those are the big things. I mean, you can go into the effort piece, which for us, that's an instant cross them off the list if you know they quit on plays. You know, if they turn the ball over and then hang their head and they don't get back on defense, that's a tough thing you know, to get out of a player when they get to us. You can think you're going to coach that out of a young person. That is a really hard mindset to get out. Those are, those are three great examples. And regarding the, the playing hard, just having the swag, you've had a, a lot of players over the years at Hope that have embodied just a competitive desire and a, a level of confidence that maybe the other the average player doesn't have. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's very important because um, we're in a failure-based sport. You know, I mean, good players miss 55% uh, of their shots. I mean, great players miss 55% of their shots. So I think that confidence and swag comes from the, um, the time and, and the effort that you put in in the offseason uh, it, it comes from coming into the gym in season in the morning and being a part of our breakfast club and shooting for 45 minutes, you know, at 630 in the morning where you gain that confidence. Swag comes from being able to deal with failure and, sw and, and flip the switch very quickly, right, and saying, you know what, give me that shot the next time down, I'm going to bury it, versus the kid that comes to the, you know, the sideline and said, What's wrong with my, what do you think's wrong with my shot? It just doesn't feel good. I mean, if you're asking me that question in a game, I may as well just sit you down because you're going to doubt yourself the rest of the game. So we, we talk often about how swag, confidence, um, you know, it's, it's born out of repetition 
And it's also born out of having the ability to talk to yourself in a positive manner. Self-talk in, in, on our team is critical to our success, right? Uh, and so we've got to have players uh, that are able to not go to what I call their bad brain and have their bad brain win. They've got to be able to listen to their good brain and say, wow, last summer I shot over 15,000 shots. On those 15,000 shots, I shot over 65% from three. Yep, I just missed three in a row. Give me the fourth. Give me the fourth. And so we talk a lot about good brain, bad brain. We talk a lot about self-talk when it comes to that. And here's the other thing. Um, I think that parenting plays a role in building confidence in young people. I think that as, as parents and as coaches, we always want to micromanage them at young levels, right? At third grade, you got kids out playing in a macker, right? Just be quiet. And afterwards, just go, hey, do you have fun? That's something I, I've, I've failed on many levels as a parent. Like, I, I mean, I've, I've had to adjust from being a coach to a dad. You know, my daughters are playing and, you know, it's like, I want to fix it. Right? We, we want to fix it. We want to control it. We've got this wisdom. We got this knowledge. Even if parents don't have any coaching knowledge, they still think they do, right? Man, we got to love our kids up. And you want a kid that's confident, has swag, you know, tell them that they're great. Hey, did you have fun today? Did you love it? Great. Oh, that's awesome. You know, oh, you're sad because you lost? Okay. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to remember that in a week. Let's go. Let's go get some ice cream. You have fun? Great. The other part I think that goes to swag is that if you're always going to the gym with your AAU coach, with your high school coach, with your dad or mom, and you're not going yourself, you're not going to have very good swag uh, because it's always them. You, ha you, you don't use your imagination. Uh, it's not a you decision. 90% of the time, it's a them decision. And if the pandemic has taught us one thing, it's grab your ball, go find a park, and go play. One-on-zero, one-on-one. Work on watching video of the WNBA, and now you're watching uh, uh, Tarasi or, you know, some of these other great players in the WNBA, and you're like, oh, I'm going to go try that move. Huh. All right. And then the next time you play one-on-one, -on -one, don't just try to win your one-on-one -on -one game. Try something different. Be okay failing. Be okay failing and trying stuff and figuring out if I can get better. That's where swag comes from. Because now all of a sudden you try a move that you haven't tried before in a game, and I was like, hmm, that got better. Another tool in the tool ball. And that's, that's such good stuff. You know, I, and I think from a coaching perspective, Man, I'd much rather have a bunch of players on my team who are almost overconfident and have all of this swagger and self-belief. And I got to try to corral oh, yeah. that a little Rain bit. It in. Then yeah. have to push and say, yeah. hey, you can do it. You can do it. I believe in you. Like, you, 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 you got this. Of course, we want to be encouraging to our players, no doubt. But I can coach till I'm blue in the face. But if that player doesn't believe in themselves, right, I mean, that's – that's where it's at. And so having 
that mindset, that swagger cannot be understated. I mean, the game, the, the biggest challenge in the game of basketball is the game played between the ears, yeah. right? Or in any sport or in, in life in general. And, and being able to, to own that is, is where we can really find some success. One of the biggest arguments that we have with our players is where does confidence come from? Right. That, that is a, and they're like, coach, you know, I just need you to show a little bit more confidence in me. And they're not wrong. You know, I, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't lift them up, but I often ask them, you know, where does confidence really come from? Is it internal or external? And I believe that the kids that can get it done with the most pressure in the biggest moments are not externally confidence kids. They're internal confidence kids. And it comes from how hard they work, how much they've been told in the past that from a parent perspective that, hey, we believe in you. And if you fail, we still got your back. You know, or they come out of a high school program where the coach was always telling them, well, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. You know what? At some point, we got to build them up. And when they get to us at college, we still have to do that to a little bit. But it's hard to resurrect somebody's confidence if they walk into your, into your program and they've never failed or they've never been micromanaged. Um, the best players that have ever played for me, the best ones, have been willing to fight me a little bit. Like, I mean, the ones I love the most are the ones that, you know, when I tell them to get to two feet, you know, they're like, but Mo, like, I, I, I saw that if I get to two feet, I'm, I'm five foot six. You know, if I, if I leave my feet, you know, now all of a sudden I'm six foot three and now I've got the angle to make that pass. So like kids that'll fight me a little bit. I love it because they've got enough confidence that they're able to take on the person put the person, you know, in, in charge and we can have good back and forth. And I've learned more from those conversations than I have at any point in my life. The kids that will challenge me that we can have like knock down drag outs and then hug and go, let's go, you know, and get back to the court. Those are the ones that you love to coach. Man. I absolutely, I, I love that. It reminds me of in college breaking down game film. We, we'd played a, we'd lost, in Carthage or Wheaton, something like that, tough game. And I remember taking a, a pull-up jump shot at the elbow, and I missed a shot. And we broke it down. Coach Davilar was upset. He said, Steve, that's a, that's a bad shot. We're, you know, fairly early in the shot clock. And I'm like, it wasn't a bad shot. And he's like, that's a bad shot. And Coach Van Weeren says, Steve, what's the percentage that you make that shot? I said, oh, it's a good – 80%. I'll make that shot eight out of 10 times. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it was a very agree to disagree, yeah. uh, you know, experience where that's my shot. In fact, that was one of my favorite shots to shoot. I missed it and we could argue timing and, and all that stuff. Um, but I wasn't asked them really change their opinion. And I think they got a good understanding of, of where I was, but I, I think it, it's that type of mentality where as, as coaches, if, if we can understand a player's confidence is, is their most important characteristic that they have. Yeah. They might be the best practice shooter in the world, but if they don't have the, the confidence to lift and, and light it up in a game, yeah. then they're really not one of the best shooters, are they? And so it, it's important for us as coaches to make sure that we're, we're encouraging that while, while letting those players 
be who they are mm -hmm. at the same time. Uh, that's, that's fantastic stuff. Coaches, we finish out the, the podcast. I want to talk to you a little bit about legacy. You've been in the game for, for decades now. What is the legacy that, that you would like to leave at Hope? Hmm. Huh. I'm such an in the moment, what does the next day hold that I haven't, I, I don't spend much time, if any, uh, thinking about that. I, I guess, wow. Um, I hope the legacy that I leave is one in which the players that played for me um, gain in confidence. They understand that life is about balance, that life is about winning every single moment that you're in, not just the public ones where you're on the basketball court. Um, so when you're, when you're sitting at a, at a table with, um, with one of your classmates on campus and you're having lunch, that you're present and you put your phone away and you're locked in. Um, that when you're in a classroom, you know, that you're locked in on that, prof on that professor and that in every single moment, you have an opportunity to win or lose the moment. And life is made up of all these little things and people that win at the most moments are gonna win at life. And then what I want them to do is take that mentality of balance and giving back to our community and being great within your family, being great at faith, and then spread that to other people. So if I can help them understand that, and then they can go out and spread that to 10 other people, and those 10 people can then spread that to 10 people each, now the ripple effect of what I hope that basketball has allowed me as a vehicle to communicate to our program is now spreading throughout all of our communities. And so I, I guess that basketball has allowed me to use it as a vehicle to, I hope, impact 18 and 22 year olds that come in and play for our basketball program. What I hope is that impact is strong enough and deep enough that they carry that forward for the rest of their lives. And now they're the people that are leading. They're the people that are impacting those around them. And then we can spread that uh, one by one and what I call the multiplier effect. You know, my one to their one to 10 to 10 to 10. And all of a sudden, we just have a better place to live. You know, we're going through really difficult times right now in America. Uh, you know, the, the shooting in Wisconsin the other day, uh, coming off of all of the other tragedies that have become very, very hot points uh, in the United States. Um, we have to be better. We, we have to be better. And uh, it starts with winning every single moment, like what I'm talking about. And if you win those moments, um, you're going to be really good at relationships. You're going to be really good at listening right? Listening, instead of always talking, listening. And when we listen, we gain understanding and appreciation. And now all of a sudden, we're a better country. That's some golden advice. I mean, understand where, where you've been, where you are now, 
where do you, where do you want to be? So if we can answer kind of those three questions and then staying present in the moment, which is, is what you broke down, how can you best leave a legacy in the future and make a positive impact on others? It's being in, in the here and now. And I appreciate you doing that with me on, on the podcast. You're for this hour that we're together, you're here answering these questions staying in the moment. And if we can continue to do that with everybody that we interact with throughout the day, whether that's our players, our, our family, our kids, mm-hmm. that's where we can really start to make a positive impact. And you're a true testament to that because I know that for a fact, because of the high, high level uh, and the recommendations that you get from so many of your, your former players, that's a true testament to the legacy that you're, you're already leaving with them. So Coach, I want to thank you again for for taking the time to be on the Coach's Edge podcast. Coaches listening, thank you for for joining us on this episode. I'll be sure to put some of uh, Coach Morehouse's coaching information in the show notes below. And whatever you're doing today, make sure you get after it. Thank you for listening to this episode and a special thank you to Coach Morehouse for taking the time. The humility combined with the hunger to continue to improve, and he's decades in the game, and he's just a student of the game, hungry to continue to get better. I love it. It's contagious, it's infectious. I hope you guys could feel that within this podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed our podcast, you found it beneficial, share it out with somebody that help us grow the coach's edge, leaving a rating, a review. Obviously, we'd love you to subscribe to check out some of our episodes. All those will go a really long way as we continue to teach, share, and learn the game from one another. Thanks again and get after it today.